Hi, this is Matt Slepin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, our first for 2021, is a conversation with one of Silicon Valley's best-known forecasters, Paul Sappho. This conversation was recorded on December 15, and while I'm recording this at the tail end of our Shellshock 2020, this conversation brings us the gift of looking forward with someone who looks forward for a living. It was a privilege to speak with Paul, and I hope that I used his time well to pull out wisdom for our listeners on Leading Voices. Paul has many friends in the real estate business and through them a history with the Urban Land Institute where I've heard Paul speak several times. In this interview, we toggled between some big topics and I tried to bring his comments back to real estate. But Paul parried most of my what's it mean today or what's it mean for our industry questions to his long-term thinking. We spent a lot of time on climate change and the role that our industry can play and the responsibility that we have on the future of our cities and our very real impact on sustainability. Of Paul's many comments, the one that will stick with me most was his quoting Jonas Salk, who famously said that, our greatest responsibility is to be good ancestors, which no surprise to our listeners, I do believe is an appropriate credo and call to action for our industry, and one which we will continue to address in leading voices. 2020 was a year which will be long remembered. My generation thought that the global financial crisis would be our depression event, but no, clearly, 2020 will be that year, marked by COVID, Trump, Black Lives Matter, and environmental disasters that will be a forever reference point in our lives referred to just by a number, 2020. I'm happy that it's over, but I think that we all know that turning the corner on 2020 is not the end of it. That on all of the main topics, 2021 is the beginning of a long figuring out how to deal with what is actually the world as it now is, where pandemics, the need to find a political will, the realization that racial and economic equity is essential, that environmental health is essential, and that all of these and more challenges are interconnected. That's our mandate if we actually want to be good ancestors. What can any of us do around these humongous issues where, in the tragedy of the commons, none of our individual behaviors can move the needle? We need to figure out how to behave. But in the collective of our industry, the real estate industry, it's not the individual in the commons, but as a group that we actually have impact potentially for the good via our actions, or for the bad through indifference and short-term thinking. Listen for these themes in the conversation with Paul. So in my small way, in my personal life, in my work, and in this project with you called Leading Voices, I will try to keep pushing on all of these themes. Thank you for allowing me this small soapbox. Best wishes to you all as we enter 2021 and as we look for paths in our businesses and careers that matter. Thank you for continuing to be a listener to Leading Voices, and please enjoy the conversation with Paul Sappho. Paul Sappho, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. This is the last conversation in our exhausting year of 2020. I am looking forward to the conversation greatly because you're going to help me make sense of what a crazy, horrible, brutal, wonderful, bizarre year this has been and what's coming forward in particular. You may have, I bet you will have insights into this. Paul, you're one of Silicon Valley's best known futurists. And so we're going to get to talk about the future. Thank God, 2020 and beyond. You teach forecasting at Stanford. You chair the future studies at Singularity University. You have degrees from Harvard, Stanford, and Cambridge. Hopefully, I can keep up with you in the conversation. Thanks for being here. My pleasure to join you. So first, just to give orientation to our listeners, what is a futurist and what do you do and why are we talking to you? Why do we care about your view of the world and how did you get that view? Right. Well, to be honest, I've spent my entire career trying not to be called a futurist <laughs> with relatively little success. I think about my job as being a forecaster, that I work on social and technological forecasting and being based in Silicon Valley, a lot of that has to do with what are the innovations in technology. So the central theme through my whole career has really been preoccupied with a single question or observation, if you will, that first we invent our technologies and then we turn around and we use our technologies to reinvent ourselves as individuals, as communities, as entire cultures, and also eventually as a planetary civilization. That's the area I work in. 
Well, and you're interested in real estate. So I've heard you twice speak to audiences of the Urban Land Institute. So tie that thesis of your career into an interest in real estate and why talk to me and why talk to our audience over time. I'm interested in everything. And I've worked on projects in all sorts of, of areas from thinking about the future of lightweight coated papers to the, the U.S. geopolitical strategic posture out 30 years and the like. So it's not so much that I have a special interest in real estate, though as a property owner in Silicon Valley, I'm, you know, I'm interested in that way. It's I really like the Urban Land Institute. I have found what's unique about people in the ULI community in particular and real estate in general is I run into a lot of people who are wicked smart. Mm-hmm. And generally, I'm the dumbest person in the room. And I run into a lot of people who are wicked practical and know how the world works. Real estate seems to be an area where there's a very high Cartesian overlap. There, People are not just smart. They also know how the world works. And I'll tell you, there are a lot of professions <laughs> that are one or the other. I think there's something about real estate that means if you're going to survive in it, you got to be both smart and also practical and understand how things work. So I've never had a dull conversation with anybody at a ULI meeting. That's interesting. If I think of a project, I think of someone who builds a project as a conductor, not a builder, right? So it it requires all disciplines. It requires understanding every instrument. Although it's interesting because what we'll talk today about are not just those who build the projects, but the accumulation of those projects and what that means in building the cities and our environments. And you must have had some of those conversations at VULI where it's, hey, I'm going to build this project and also make a lot of money maybe. But also we are building communities, urban fabric, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I've done a lot on the future of cities over the years. And let's face it, real estate is ground zero where culture and community and cities meet. And there's some specific, you know, I have some close friends, some of you are members who I just always look forward to talking with them because I always learn something new. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we're, yeah. we'll get into the future of cities for a minute, but let's stay really broad for a second before we kind of turn to our topics of real estate. And I'm curious if you look at people who do what you do have the top 10 trends that are going on. If you just give a review of that and then maybe fit our world into that, how do you make sense of today? Which I'm having trouble making sense of, I will have to admit to you. My job is is mapping uncertainty. The way I think about the future is you can look out and there is a cone of uncertainty. And it's a term I borrow from meteorologists. I'll take my ideas from wherever I can find them. So mm-hmm. you've seen pictures of a hurricane, so-called cone of uncertainty. You know, is it going to hit Mobile or is it going to hit New Orleans? The only difference is, and the common sense essence of it is that the farther you go out, the more uncertain things become. And so... I don't predict, rather I forecast and I try to understand what the range of uncertainties are. And I say to myself, is that cone in a particular area? Is it broad? Is it narrow? What's in it? What lies outside of it? How it could change? And the reason why it matters is the cone of uncertainty is also the cone of possibility. That a world in which the future could be predicted with certainty, first of all, is most certainly not a world that we live in. And secondly, it would be a very uninteresting world to live in because there would be no surprise. And for example, if everybody knew how the stock market was going to turn out, Mm -hmm. investing would be pretty boring. Rather, what I see is that there is intrinsic uncertainty, that the uncertainty derives from the fact that our actions in the present affect the outcomes in the future. And so really what forecasting is all about you know, strip away the methods and everything else. It's about deeply understanding the present in order to appreciate what could be next. Hmm. And that's what I work on. Hmm. So deeply understand this present, and this sticks really present for a minute because we are ending the year 2020, which saw more presentness than I've ever seen in my life (laughs) with COVID, with elections, with Black Lives Matter, with a missing three or four momentous events of the year. 
But how do you make sense of the future from this specific year versus the trends that were going on before? And how do they fit together? And I'll ask one last question. I'm mushing them all up together. But I don't think I mean, COVID's unrelated, right? It's not. No, obviously, the main event of the year has been the pandemic. And it's important to begin by saying that this was an utterly avoidable global pandemic. It got out of China because of a political failure in China. After SARS, the Chinese government installed what they thought was a politician-proof surveillance system. And what they discovered was that the surveillance system wasn't politician-proof. And so by the time they got a handle on Wuhan, it was already out of the bag. And then that problem was magnified globally by the failings of other governments, uh, famously our government failing to take COVID seriously. Everything was in place. We had all the systems to stop this. We had all the backstops. And because of political and cultural failings, it got loose. So plus the fact that this was an utterly predictable pandemic. In my career as a forecaster, I've lost count of how many pandemic tabletop exercises and forecasts I participated in. And so I couldn't help but giggle as, I mean, in a very dark yeah. way, uh, people said, oh, I predicted this. It's like, well, get in line. You know, if anyone deserves the most credit for anticipating this, it is Lori Garrett, who won the Pulitzer Prize in the mid-1990s for her book, The Coming Plague. And she is still very involved in this. And I recommend looking at her stuff. And it truly was an exceptional event. To me, part of the exceptional event. So when I look at somebody and say, what's the larger context? The larger context is this is a reminder as we've known that the nation state order has been waning for the last 50 years. And what we need to do in this century is to get serious about building a true global civilization, that we, we need to think like a planetary civilization and we're not. And that's a big part of the reason why this was a problem. The way I think about what's ahead, in fact, I'm thinking about it in great detail today because I'm getting ready for my class next quarter, mm -hmm. is what is, the trajectory of the next five to 10 years in a post-pandemic world. In the last 12 months, what we've seen is that the pandemic has served as a very powerful forcing function on things that were already trends, like video conferencing, remote work, flexible office hours and the like. Now we need to look five to 10 years and say, how is this gonna change the shape of our cities and the change of our social interactions and basically everything else? Sadder but wiser, Hopefully, we're going to do the right thing this time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the shape of our cities because that's that's our subject. But before that, you mentioned building a global civilization. It feels like we go in the opposite direction or the forces that be go in the opposite direction to deny the reality and need for that. And I think that's part of the painful political process we have not just here, but sure. across the world. And, you know, there was a scholar at Stanford, René Girard. Very, very important individual. He was one of the, the French immortals. Um, and he's the father of what's called mimetic history. And he put it rather bluntly and darkly and said, history is a test and mankind is failing it. I am not that bleak, but I share Girard's urgency in his voice and the urgency of others. This is a world where our biggest problem is we are being overwhelmed by utterly predictable events that through neglect are turning into catastrophes. Climate change is one of those things. We have known about atmospheric carbon since the late 1800s when Svante Arrhenius mm -hmm. did the calculations. We were alerted to this in the 1970s in the New York Times, James Hansen. We have known this is a problem and yet we cannot find the planetary civilizational will to address it. And individual governments have trouble with addressing something that takes that kind of investment in the well, long-term future. It's not just future. individual governments. You know, we all breathe the same air mm -hmm. and air doesn't respect borders. And take something as simple as the question of whether we're going to list the monarch butterfly as an endangered species in the United States. Well, the monarchs cross borders. It's right. really something we need to do jointly with Mexico. It's great if the United States can do something, but we really need international cooperation. And there's almost no problem I can think of today 
that doesn't have some cross-border dimension. I totally agree with that. Is it finally the time in our country that the climate crisis gets somehow taken more seriously, dealt with, admitted? Admitted, I love that word, but is that going to happen now with the change administration? And then does the rest of the country come along and say, oh yeah, we were just joking that this was not no, really that? I, I think everybody, this could be a very long conversation. This administration will take the climate seriously, but it's going to be over the opposition of lots of people in this country. We have this infinite capacity to make everything political in this country. Mm-hmm. And that forces people to be in a position where they don't change their minds. And we thus end up in a situation, it was famously Churchill who said, oh, the United States always does the right thing, but only after trying every other alternative first. Mm -hmm. The last 12 months felt a lot like we weren't even willing to do the right thing after trying every other alternative. So we have to find a way to break that. I don't honestly don't see evidence that it's going to. I think we're going to shoot across into a world of climate change where the damage is irreversible and we're just going to have to deal with it. But even dealing Uh, with coping, you can't avoid it. You can't stop it at this point, I think. But then the coping mechanisms still require that level of coordination and cooperation to make it work. Well, you know, a lot of people are going to die. A lot of cities are going to have to relocate. It's already seen the evidence of climate effects, you know, in terms of increased storm surges and the like. Bangladesh has been badly hit. Florida is not going to be very far behind. You know, there you've got a combination. It's barely above sea level and it's on limestone karst topography. Mm -hmm. So it's basically a limestone sponge at sea level. There's no way to build seawalls to stop that. And then the question is, where do people move? The obvious, you know, candidate places people talk about. Austin, Texas looks like it's going to be a home for a lot of climate refugees. Strangely, Orlando is. That doesn't make sense to me, but Mm. could be. But again, as a forecaster, I want to pull back to the macro and say, well, since we haven't responded to this effectively, and we're only going to respond after the fact, then the question is, what do we do? Hopefully, we've reached a point, and I think within the next few years, this really will happen. People will agree finally, yes, climate change is real, and it's anthropogenic. We should have settled that 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. But so then the real debate is, what do we do? And there are two schools of thought so far. The first group, let's call them the Druids, with a tip of the hat to the mm-hmm. famous nickname for David Brower. The Druids say, we got to turn the clock back. we got to make Earth National Park. We have to go lighter on the land. We've, we've got to restore and revive. The other group, call them engineers, say, no, no, no. We need to go faster into the future. And we need to do aggressive engineering things like sunshades at the Lagrange points or sprinkle iron filings off the mid-Pacific in order to capture, sequester carbon and take it down to the seabed. And as I look at it, their instincts are great, but it's too late to take the Druid's prescription. It would mean the death of tens, maybe hundreds of millions of people on the planet because you couldn't sustain Mm -hmm. current population by going back. And the engineers, well, it was the engineers who got us into this mess to begin with. You know, Druids tend to be earth scientists and biologists. They're by nature pessimists. Engineers tend to be optimists, just give me enough money and I can fix anything. But I've learned that dramatic fixes always lead to dramatic unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. So there's no one and done. I think both sides are wrong. There is a third alternative that really touches on city thinking. And that alternative is to think like a gardener, that, okay, the planet is as screwed up as it is, that we can't restore it to what it once was. Doing big dramatic changes is probably a poor idea. It would be expensive and have all sorts of unwelcome economic consequences. And so instead, what we need to do is treat it like a garden that's been neglected and lots of small steps, lots of small corrections and lots of patience. And you talked about gardening like city thinking. So talk about that. Think about, you know, the successful cities are the ones that have been grown and tended, mm-hmm. not the ones that have been engineered and built. I mean, last time I checked, Brasilia really wasn't that much of a success. And all the planned cities 
generally tend to not be places people want to live. Cities arise in an organic process and they grow and die in organic ways. Now, you know, it's borders and malpractice per se, because I'm not a real estate professional <laughs> and I'm not an urban planner, but my perception is that it works best when it's messy and organic and has a mixture of long-term thinkers in leadership and pragmatic problem solvers and people who choose to, to live there. Well, that sounds a lot like a garden to me. <laughs> I think that we have a lot of Druids who in the cities say, no, stop, no, stop, don't do this, don't do that. The well, sure, NIMBY, it's an instinct. The NIMBY instinct and go to the past is the instinct we see across the board. Right. And, and that's why thinking as a gardener may be the common ground between engineer and druid. Mm -hmm. It's funny. One, another thing you said a few minutes ago was cities might have to relocate. And I'm remembering a trip we took to Turkey with my family, I don't know, six or eight years ago. And we went to Ephesus and we saw Ephesus of, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, 1,200 years ago. And then the other Ephesus up the hill that was 1,100 years ago. And then the third Ephesus, it kept moving around. And I was trying to get my head around, well, and, and each one lived for 300 years or something. And right. it was such a bizarre kind of, it stretched my mind and elongated my thinking about the world. Do our cities relocate? How does that work for us? So, well, we think of cities as fixed things, but they're mobile in time mm -hmm. and they're mobile in geography. You know, that's why we have all the tales of the lost cities. Mm -hmm. um, and it's no surprise. I, I think of a city as a nexus. You know, think of the famous trading centers and the like, that they're aggregations of people who choose to be in one place. Well, you were, you were talking about cities. And, and the question then is cities evolve, cities change. They may disappear. They may move around. Although our population thinks in terms of six months, one year, two year timeframes, not in terms of 20 year timeframes when these things happen. So it's painful and hard to particularly, and now time is moving so quickly in terms of some of these outcomes for climate change in particular. It will, at both climate change and then put on top of that COVID, where so many people right. have moved out of cities, temporary, well, permanent, we don't know yet. One framework, as, mm -hmm. as a forecaster, I think in frameworks. And one framework I think is especially relevant to ULI and to real estate mm -hmm. is the so-called pace layer model that Stuart Brand developed. He first wrote about it in a book, The Clock of the Long Now in 1997. And he and I've talked about it together. We, we did a talk together for Long Now. I really recommend looking it up. And it, it's actually borrowed inspiration was the notion of shear layers, layers in architecture shear layers of a building. The thing that changes fastest is who comes and goes more slowly, the color of paint on the walls, slower yet the structure, the slowest of all the property lines. Mm -hmm. So apply that to civilization and you have, you know, things like fashion at the top and nature at the bottom and, right. and things in between. And so a city is an intersection of fast and slow processes. The fastest being who comes and goes, the slowest being the nature, environment, and things in between. So whenever you're looking at a city, I'd say, what are, what are the slow-moving parts? What are the fast-moving parts that make this city vibrant and alive? And then keep in mind that revolutions happen. In general, the upper layers move fast, the lower layers move slowly. Revolutions happen when lower layers suddenly move faster than upper layers. And that's what climate change is doing, that climate change is forcing climate migrants out of Central America because the rains are failing and they can't do their crops. Hmm. And so bring that forward. It's, it's interesting. So an hour ago, I was on a Urban Land Institute call. We were a bunch of apartment people. And everyone was talking about whether apartments will start renting again in the cities, particularly our great cities. And one of my favorite comments from one of the podcasts with an urban planner, I asked if the return to the city, this is now three years ago, was temporary. Was it a fad or was it permanent? He said, well, the history of civilization is cities moving forward, not suburbs moving forward or not or, you know, exurban areas moving forward. But the debate here was, does this become a longer term shift for people to move into, quote unquote, secondary cities or whatever? And are people going to be scared of urban environments going forward for a while? Well, I don't think that's the, the right dimension to think about it. We're in the middle. A lot of 
what's happened is because we're in the middle of a fundamental media shift Hmm. that in my opinion is bigger than anything since 1500 to 1520. And that is the shift from mass media, the order of newsprint and magazines and television to personal media, which is the web, internet, social media and the like. And just like 1501, Aldous's publication of Virgil, the first modern book, putting printing into the hands of the public, not in the form of books, but pamphlets, you know, that that was truly revolutionary. And it changed the shape of cities mm-hmm. in Italy and across Europe. And by the way, it did lead to some actual revolutions. We recently celebrated the round number anniversary of Luther and the start of the Reformation. Well, his argument with his local bishop was turned into a European-wide revolution because of the printing press. Mm-hmm. And not surprisingly, we're in the middle of social upheaval and revolution right now because the age of mass to shift from mass to personal media has given individuals voices, and we haven't yet learned how to aggregate those voices and match responsibility to it. So in the case of cities, the pandemic's been this forcing function that has imposed more capable tools of cyberspace into our everyday lives. And the essential reason cyberspace matters is that unlike physical space, in cyberspace, there's no distance between two points. It's that simple. No distance between two points. You and I can be one click away, regardless of what arbitrary piece of geography we're in. And so what I see going forward for cities is it isn't, are we going to be urban or rural? It's how are we going to complete the full integration of physical space and cyberspace? And what will that lead to patterns of urban and rural location? The one thing I will say that we have learned already, this is not news, when you give people a choice of where they can live and what has happened with electronics and cyberspace is we have unlocked the tight coupling between where someone lives and where someone works. It's the latest chapter. Once upon a time, people lived in walking distance of the factories. Then they got automobiles with the Model T and they could live further away. And between there was urban railways. So we've been slowly unlocking that tight coupling. Now we've blasted it wide open with social media and video conferencing and the like. And depending on circumstances, people can literally live anywhere or actually use different time zone to their advantage. It's like there are a lot of people from Silicon Valley who've moved to Hawaii. They just love it because since they're a couple of hours behind the West Coast, they get up early, they do their West Coast business. And then when the West Coast finishes for the day, they've still got a couple of hours to go surfing. Mm-hmm. So what I think we've got now is this very rich cultural cocktail of physical location and electronic options. And everybody is going to figure out which piece of the combination works best for them. I don't see us depopulating cities to all go live in electronic cottages. And I also don't see everybody going, well, this hanging out in Mendocino was a mistake. Uh, Or my favorite is a whole bunch of people, I was told by a real estate agent, there are a bunch of people from Manhattan buying places up at Tahoe, sight unseen, and really eager to move there. And they don't seem to appreciate that Tahoe winters are fairly serious. So, you know, it's going to be a lot of turmoil, but Mm -hmm. it's a sorting process. People are going to try new things and we're going to see certain areas will depopulate. Uh, I think cities will do fine that have the right amenities. And frankly, I think the biggest losers will be the charismatic exurbs, those really beautiful places that people just want to live like Santa Fe and, and Tahoe are going to have to deal with too many people and, you know, Right. Getting loved to death, like the, the little child's toy that got its fur rubbed off. Yeah, there'll be too, there are too many. There'll be losers because too many, not enough. But let me, let's go back to a question and then talk about that. And then we're going to forward to the specific on this, because this uncoupling of those dynamics and the creation of a global civilization, mashing up with global warming and climate change, which is needs quick response, somewhat quick response. How We haven't learned how to behave in this environment yet. We haven't learned how to communicate. We haven't learned the global civilization yet. 
can we, these tools will help us do that, but they'll also get us not to do that. You know, it's anyone's guess at this moment in time. Are we going to learn the right lessons? Are we going to become responsible global citizens? Or are we going to behave in foolish ways? And the history of cities and civilizations gives us mixed messages. They do. And those and, and learning how to use those tools. It's it's fascinating. At work, we've learned to use those tools quite effectively. And it does bring us together in this fascinating, immediate way. Again, I was on this committee call for my Urban Land Institute Council, and there were 50 of us all around the country. No one had a tie on. Thank God it was beautiful. And, you know, we got to see everybody and half people were eating and half people at home, half people at the office. But we've learned to adapt really well. And I've also heard zoning hearings have gone well, too, because they you can't go there on Mau Mau. You kind of virtual zoning hearings might have gone go, right. go more smoothly. Right. Well, and this is, you know, whenever we have a new technology, we use it to pave the cow paths, if you, if you will, to do an old thing a little more efficiently. I worked on when I was a young pup in, in a research think tank in the 80s getting started. I wrote report after report about the business benefits of teleconferencing and video conferencing. Mm-hmm. If you would go back to my former self back then and tell me that the all it would take is a global pandemic to get it accepted. I, you know, I guess I would have laughed and said, well, who can I infect? But so far, keep in mind that what we've done has worked well, but it's an imitation of what we did face to face, what you and I are doing right now. Mm-hmm. One of the first things that's going to disappear is the idea that we're going to sit in front of screens and talk to each other, that we're going to move to immersive experiences. There are already some really interesting audio immersive experiences. Phil Rosedale, who invented Second Life, has got a new thing called Hi-Fi, high fidelity that does really rich binaural sound. And it's just terrific. But obviously, virtual reality and augmented reality, which has been around since Scott Fisher at NASA was doing the original augmented reality goggles, Mm -hmm. that's going to be the next thing that VR goggles and headsets are coming real fast. And you can think about it this way. It's not just that we're going to wear goggles instead of staring at a screen. It enriches the experience. So this is nothing new. Gosh, 15, 20 years ago, I remember a conversation. There were two microbiologists and their offices were in the same building, but they were meeting wearing goggles because in the virtual reality environment they were in, they could manipulate molecular structures. Mm -hmm. And so it was actually a richer environment for them to meet virtually than in person. Mm -hmm. I would imagine the same thing with CAD CAM and architectural drawings that you will have meetings with developers and real estate people saying, let's meet in cyberspace. That way we can do the virtual walkthrough through the concept. I bet that's going to happen. And it's here but that runs against the thought of we have to be somewhat near each other to, well, a, a different question. How do we eat dinner? Well, stop you right there. The question, being near is, is a proxy mm-hmm. for proximity. And sometimes you can be more proximate to someone electronically than you can physically. You can be more intimate. And so what we're doing is creating this really rich electronic cocktail, this electronic environment that has all sorts of options and richness. And then the question is, where does it fit in our lives? We've done this many times before. Mm-hmm. It's what we did with the telephone. Right. Think about, you know, before the advent of the telephone in polite society in America, a woman could not talk to a male stranger without first being introduced by a relative or another close friend. Mm -hmm. And the telephone completely blew that up and changed the whole process. And then automobiles did the same thing again. So each innovation has social consequences. We're just in the early stages of sorting out what those will be for us. All true. So let's get back to cities. Let's get back to work environments. Let's get back to collaboration culture. Let's get back to I'm going to just use the word bodily functions because both procreation and having a word I've never used on our podcast and eating require being together. And there's lubrication in eating that allows relationships to form that could happen virtually, but might not. 
And all of well, what you're arguing would say you could de-densify really easily because everyone could be a mile apart and live almost all of life except for the bodily functions. Well, and we've had lots of dystopian visions of that. Forster in the 1930s did a short story titled The Machine Stops of this bleak world of everybody living in their cubicles and having food delivered. Sort of sounded like being a software programmer. Yeah. Um, that, again, what it does is we now have these options. Like, this is, I did an essay way back long ago, I think in the 90s for Fortune magazine, maybe in the 80s, when everybody was talking about travel substitution. Mm -hmm. And my comment was the obvious one. It's like, no, we're not going to get travel substitution. We're going to get travel shifting. Mm -hmm. As our electronic media get more rich and convenient, we will use them more. But the more we use them, the more we'll want to travel. You know, it's common sense. If you meet someone electronically and you carry on the conversation long enough, that inevitably leads to the desire to meet face-to-face. -face. And once you meet face-to-face, -face, then you're going to want to continue the conversation electronically so that you end up doing more of both, that you just shift them into more convenient locations. Mm -hmm. So you know, I mean, think about my life. I spend a lot of time on Zoom, but there's some things I have to do in person, like tomorrow there's there's a blood shortage right now so i'm going to go donate blood tomorrow i can't do that remotely i got to go into an office it's a bodily function thing yeah it comes back and yeah so you know virtual kiss in my stanford class way back 15 years ago and and it's a class where i always ask a central question the question i asked around 2005 is what year would someone sue for the right to marry their robot and now it's hardly even news where you have a Romanian weightlifter getting married to, you know, his sex doll and the like. We crave relationships. We sure do. It's interesting. I talked to a client about this recently and, and we had a long meeting in New York uh, six months ago with someone. And he said, you know, as you're coming to visit with us in person instead of on video that made this work. And I said, yeah, it was actually the side conversation. When I went into your office, we closed the door, sat down and told the truth outside of that meeting, because that meeting really could happen in augmented reality. But we would have forgotten to go to his room, close the door and say, hey, give me the scoop, buddy. Well, that's, you know, that is the additional dimension of serendipity. Right. It's happenstance. Cities work because you have happenstance events. You know, mm -hmm. a friend of mine likes to say nothing propinks like propinquity. <laughs> well, you can also have propinquity online. There's a really interesting conference platform. A couple of them do this now where for the breaks, what you do is it's kind of like speed dating. You randomly dropped into a conversation with someone else for four or five minutes. And then you're all, each of you are sent off to a conversation with someone else. And it's really kind of fun and interesting. Is it a substitute for being in person? Well, no, but you know, what I found was, you know, how many times have you gone to a conference and during the break, you really want to talk to that speaker or the famous person who's there, like at a TED conference. But, you know, a TED conference tends to be like a, a three-class airplane or the World Economic Forum, the same thing in Davos, you know, that the, the poobahs all meet and the little people can't get to the poobahs. Well, what this system did is it scrambled all that. And all of a sudden, you know, you're meeting with the keynote speaker. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, We'll figure out ways to do it electronically, but here's an idea. Pull this back to the basics, and that is, what is it about humans? What motivates us as a social animal? And I think it comes down to three things motivate people. I keep trying to think of a fourth, but I haven't yet. The desire to be useful, mm -hmm. the desire to tell stories, and the desire to collect stuff. You know, in a way, that's what cities are. There's a desire to be useful. Can we help each other? Can we cooperate? Cities where people cooperate succeed. Cities where people don't cooperate don't succeed. Um, so it's to be useful, to tell stories. We want to have our story, we want to tell our stories, we want to hear our stories. That's why we have social events at restaurants and everything else. And then the desire to collect stuff, which explains eBay. But you know, I really think that you can think about just about anything as a mixture of those three things, that fundamental human desires have not changed, mm -hmm. as far as we know, over tens of thousands of years. And it's just the way they express themselves. We have more opportunities to collect crap, you know, and, and we're like, uh, you know, collecting crap. We're, we're like salmon instinctively swimming upstream. Think about here in California mm -hmm. that... 
people, you know, they got their houses and they started collecting more and more stuff. So we solved the problem. We said, well, we'll build you McMansions. And then they were still collecting so much stuff and they, things they couldn't afford with money they didn't have, you know, and had no use for, but they didn't want to get rid of it because it was their stuff. And so some genius said, let's create a public storage option where you can drive your junk down, put it in a locker and forget about it. And then when you stop paying, we'll auction it off. And then, of course, Americans said, well, that's great, but we're lazy. We don't like driving our junk down there. And someone else said, we have an even better idea. We'll bring the storage locker to your driveway, fill it up, and <laughs> you know, we'll go store it. To me, someone really missed an opportunity here. What they should have done with that said, pay us a one-time fee. You'll never have to think about your stuff again. And they take the filled up container straight out to the California desert, dig a really deep trench, lay them in stratigraphic order. And when it's filled, cover it up, put a little love note to the archaeologist of 2200 AD on top and say, there must be at least 100 PhD dissertations in here. It's perfect. It's perfect. I, th I think that's all true. So let's try to make this specific. And you have clients and friends who think about this and talk about this, and it's the real estate question. And so we've talked kind of generally about cities. If And this gets really specific, but if someone's building an office building today, what are they building it for? And before you answer, my answer to the thing that you said is probably I want to do half of that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I want to do the other half Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So I'll have more choice and more optionality around the ways I interact versus mm -hmm. the old way of interacting, which was Monday to Friday, a certain model and weekends, a different model. But how do we plan oh, for all this stuff? So thinking about planning that office, it's Two things. So, you know, an investment, a building's life is, you know, 30 to 50 years, whatever. Right. And the and you've got the investment horizon. Then you have all those shorter things happening like fashion, politics and <laughs> and the like and occasional surprises like nature. You know, if you think about that, that the decision to build is your assessment of all the fast and slow processes that are behind the recovery of the investment and the usefulness of the building. Now think of it in terms of the cone of uncertainty. The cone of uncertainty for me is, is, is like a manifold. There are moments when it's very broad and moments when it's narrow and clear. So like the moment you know, the 9-11 attack happened, or a better example was the fall of the Berlin Wall in the <laughs> late 1980s. Before then, the cone of uncertainty around international relations was the bounds were well known. It was the Cold War and everybody kind of knew the script. When the Berlin Wall fell, that cone widened out to almost 180 degrees. And everybody goes, I have no idea what's going to happen next. But then with the passage of time, the cone narrowed again into the shape of the new world order. And you could start making policy and plans and the like. The same thing is true now with the pandemic, particularly at this moment where finally a vaccine has arrived and we're beginning to see the shape of a post-pandemic world. As uh, someone observed, we see the light at the end of the tunnel, but the rest mm -hmm. of the tunnel is still pretty darn dark. And so what I would say is that the answer is not clear about investing in an office building right now, but it's going to get a lot more clear in the next couple of months. And clear, not just at the macro level of should I build, but down at the micro level of what should the space feel like. Like I noticed as a forecaster, I spend a lot of time looking for things that don't fit things that seem out of place, because oftentimes they're indicators. Mm -hmm. Well, there was one of those. As I came off the freeway exit for our neighborhood the other day, I saw an amazing thing in front of me. There was, and, and if you'd like, I can send you a picture of it. I saw this amazing thing in front of me. It was a sign said, Nick's Delicatessen or Nick's Greek Restaurant, now hiring. It was a sign they were building a new restaurant mm -hmm. in the little strip mall there next to the freeway. And I thought, I haven't seen that in a while. And it leads to all sorts of thoughts. A lot easier to build out a new restaurant space from scratch with all the things you need for pandemic stuff rather than try and refit an old one. So the decision to build a building has all those dimensions. Plus, you know, you got to get the systems right. Here in Silicon Valley, we have the other additional dimension that, you know, certain people have moved out of town. Elon Musk has moved to Texas. And, and of course, Larry Ellison has declared that he's moving Oracle's headquarters out of Silicon Valley to Austin, which, by the way, is an interesting thing. I don't think Larry's thought about this. The current headquarters is built on an old lagoon. It was Marine World USA. Right. That's 
level. And Austin is number one on the list of the top 10 cities where climate migrants are going to relocate to in the United States. So he's if he's really doing this move, which I doubt, it is a very wise long-term move for, for Oracle and the climate. Mm-hmm. For those cities like that, and makes total sense, Austin. Well, it- and if they take it, yeah, if they take advantage of it in the correct way, I mean, the estimate is that Austin is going to have a, a quarter million new residents between now and late 2040s. That could work out okay, or, you know, maybe it, Austin won't be quite as much fun. I don't think it will be. It's what, what you said about Santa Fe. I have friends from Austin. My college roommate grew up in Austin and he goes back home and it's not a city he recognizes. And that's already now. That's not that next 20 years. Yeah. So, and you said Santa Fe or the cities, you know, or places like that, Tahoe, Santa Fe, whatever, will lose. So will those cities that have charm that will become, you know, as big as everybody else. question is what kind of fabric will they have? What will the personality uh, and dynamic be? The places I worry about are not cities that have to go through a transition. I think this is going to be a world where we're going to decide that there are places we just don't want to be bothered with. Mm -hmm. The paradise, California, in some ways, was one of those. You know, paradise is one of those places where, in some cases, it's where some people go as the last place to go before becoming homeless. And it was the, the outer edge of what people could tolerate for driving into jobs where they had to be physically Mm -hmm. present. Mm -hmm. So I was, I happened to be in paradise. I had to go up to paradise during the fires and in what was it? 2017. It was amazing coming up this two lane highway, all the southbound traffic at five in the morning heading into Sacramento for jobs. So to me, the thing we need to pay attention to is the neglected areas. Well, the neglected areas, I think, are also part of the political dysfunction because those are the areas that kind of went way red, didn't need to be, but did. They were as, the old saying, as the old saying goes, be very, very careful how you take hope away from a man. <laughs> there are a lot of people who have had their hope taken away and their dreams taken away, and they're going to make life absolutely miserable for anyone they see as responsible for that. Yeah. Which, by the way, gets to, you know, we've been talking about cities, but we should really be talking about city states, you know, not actual city states so much as de facto city states like the San Francisco Bay Area. Take our nine counties. We would be if we were a nation state, we would be the world's 16th largest economy. And so we need to think regionally and The future of the city, to me, is these larger aggregations where a city-state works because it's small enough that everybody identifies with living there. You know, we all Mm -hmm. identify with living in the Bay Area, but also large enough in its influence that it can have a global effect. You know, San Francisco, the Grateful Dead, cultural gifts, Google, Apple, Silicon Valley, that it's a perfect nexus of culture, identity, economy, and innovation. And to me, the future lies not with nation states in this century, but with city states. It's interesting. There's more and more articles that I've been reading lately that political function does happen in local areas and the dysfunctions happening as we put it together at the federal level. And it, we've talked a lot about that. How do you wind up having those functional areas in a city state and do regional planning? So how do you move to that? How do you move to within that city-state taking care of people, taking care of yourself, having the uh, body politic work, income inequality, affordable housing, homelessness? Right. Those are problems of local areas dealt with right. locally, but not dealt well, with locally. I'm a forecaster, so I'm a professional bystander. <laughs> I would not presume to come up with actual actionable problems, but I would say I would start by thinking like a gardener and each each city is going to be very different. So California, mm-hmm. we have a city-state conurbation centered around San Francisco, <laughs> or as my friends in San Jose might say, centered around Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, down south, you've got the greater Los Angeles basin. You know, It's got a population greater than the combined population of seven states in the upper Midwest. Right. 
And then you have a really interesting one down in San Diego that actually straddles the border and includes Mexicali and Tijuana. Each one of those has a completely different set of challenges. And so they're going to have to get it worked out in different ways. There's no one size fits all. But the one thing I do think is very important is social cohesion. <laughs> social cohesion plus vision. You need visionaries, people who are deeply committed and will take the visionary steps to make things start to work right. But then you need social cohesion among the public. And this is not a new idea. It was the famous Arabic historian, Ibn Khaldun, who in his book, The Mukadama, this was, I think, 10th century, I forget. He did a study in Northern Africa, the cities that survived, culture survived and didn't. And, and he discovered cases where a smaller defender would prevail against a larger attacker. And the determinant of success in every single case was asabia, the social cohesion. And that at the end of the day, in my opinion, social cohesion is the single most important success factor for cities and for organizations. If you have high social cohesion, you can make things happen. If you have low social cohesion, then things are going to grind to a halt. Okay. The old saying goes, it's a lot better to stand on each other's shoulders mm -hmm. than to stand on each other's feet. That works. So, Paul, let's come back to this one. So let's mash up social cohesion. Your comments from before about mass media has moved to personal media. Your comment before that about we need a global civilization. Those are the trends or those are the, the gotta haves. How do they come together at the same time? Sounds pretty daunting, again, in a quick time to deal with some of these issues that feel more dystopian, more quickly dystopian sure, than well, they do coming together. You know, this is a moment when pessimism is the new and oh so fashionable black. Yeah. But, you know, hist if history is any indication, uh, we'll muddle through. The thing I would say, instead of offering a prediction of whether it turns out or not, is cities in general and what real estate people do in particular mm -hmm. is going to be a key determinant of success. How we, you know, something as simple as designing property lines. And do you make big lots, small lots, or whatever? Real estate people are civilization builders. Mm -hmm. And they need to realize that as civilization builders, they have a responsibility to build wisely and well and with vision. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's have the end part of the podcast talk about those comments. So real estate people are civilization builders. How do we do that? How do we look at these grandiose concepts around the concept of a building an apartment building, buddy. I got, I could get in 200 units. They're approved. How do I, how do I go about that? How does that work? How's it get approved? How's the neighbors not tell me I got to make it 15 units, whatever the problems are. And in any sector of real estate, how does that work? How does it get a longer term vision? And then also if we layer on climate change to that, we're going to be the builders of the, climate change solutions in buildings. Like if I said, we don't ain't going to work. I've, I've noticed that what's amazing about real estate people is they are a unique overlap of wicked smart and wicked practical. Yeah. And I think the dimension I would add to it mm -hmm. is, you know, I have a good friend who was one of the early real estate people in Mission Bay and was a key part of that vision. Mm -hmm. Long-term patient view that I think the way to tackle these things is to consciously say, okay, instead of thinking 30 years, I'm going to think 70 years. And if I'm already thinking 70, I'm going to think 140 years. Mm -hmm. You know, at the end of the day, the best advice any of us could take was um, that given by Jonas Salk back in like 1963. So the inventor of the polio vaccine. Right. And Salk observed that the purpose, the, the, the most important thing to do in life is to become good ancestors. Hmm. We all need to ask ourselves, how do we become good ancestors? In every action from our smallest action to our largest action, we instinctively do that well with raising our children and worrying about grandchildren. So at a family unit, people tend to think like good ancestors. And now the question is, how do we think like good ancestors when it comes to things like cities and the projects that we build in them? I love that. So let's put a different layer on it, the layer of capital. And how does capital behave as a good ancestor? How do they get be paid to do that? 
and what's the cost of good ancestor versus eh, so-so ancestor in well, building a building, building a road, whatever it is? Yeah, I, <laughs> I would say, well, if you want the question answered about capital, I refer you to Thomas Piketty, uh -huh. you know, who wrote The Mystery of Capital, Capital in the 21st Century, and, you know, got a free dinner in Stockholm when he won the Nobel Prize. Uh -huh. So as they say, thinking about capital is above my pay grade. But as a forecaster, what I've noticed is very odd. Uh -huh. Let's not talk about capital. Let's talk about capitalism. Uh -huh. And when I talk to people, it is easier for them to imagine the end of human culture than it is for them to imagine the end of capitalism. Let me mm -hmm. say that again. It's easier for them to think about the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And that to me as a forecaster suggests that we've got a lot of deeply unexamined assumptions mm -hmm. about capital and capitalism uh, that we better think about ahead. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that one of the, we've talked about this on the podcast a bunch, which is real estate likes being invested in five to seven year vehicles. And the buildings, as you said, are 30, 40, 50, 70, 100 years. You talked about cities that are organic like Paris. These are buildings that are 300 years. And actually, real estate wealth is created over long-term hold periods. Those are the families yeah. that have a bunch of dough. Um, but how do you get capital to think longer term? And all of a sudden, some of these answers then become safer. Say that again. If you, if you think of, we're going to build a building, we're investing in your building, this building, and we're right. going to hold on to this building for everything we hold is at least 10 years or 20 years, whatever the, the period of time for that hold is. Then all of a sudden, if I'm looking at it, not for a three-year, hey, I'm going to make my money quick and get out, but I'm looking at it over a 20-year period, then climate change actually comes into the investment, the safety of oh, the investment bet. in the building. Well, and obsolescence it, comes into the basic of the investment yeah. and upkeep. Right. And, no, and, you know, uh, large investment firms started taking climate change into account 10 years ago. I, I co-founded an analytics startup that was advising Wall Street, and we ultimately failed, but it was an interesting ride. But I saw the first glimmerings of, of the investment community taking climate change seriously. Sadly, one of them said, well, this is great. We're going to invest in land in Northern Canada because we'll have to grow wheat. And, oh, this is great. We'll be able to ship oil over the top of Canada and top of Siberia. And I said, you missed the point. But we're seeing that, yes, climate change is already moving into having effect in investment decisions today. Ask the CEO of Exxon. Mm -hmm. His company's stock is tanking and the shareholders are in open revolt because Exxon stubbornly refused to take climate change seriously and mitigate uh, the effects of what it was doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're talking very long-term and very global about these topics. I own a house in Sonoma County, which is the most impacted, one of the most impacted areas for fires. Am I crazy? Are we going to burn down? I know I shouldn't ask the prognosticator. No, I, so if it's any comfort, deal with stuff like that? So I live two miles from the San Andreas Fault. Mm -hmm. The lower part of my property, because we're on the edge of a, a, a hill, the lower part theoretically is in a flood zone if the dam fails. I'm also in the highest wildland fire hazard danger. I've, I even have deer mice on the property, so I probably have hantavirus. So I have at least three of the four horsemen of the apocalypse <laughs> hanging out in my backyard. The fact is that places like where you live and where I live are interesting to live precisely because of the dangers. The fault gave us the beautiful mountains of the Bay Area, and the mountains gave you the beautiful scenery and the like. And it's not a question of living in a safe place, maybe live in Kansas, but then you got tornadoes. It's rather saying, can I, do I understand and can I accept the risks? Mm -hmm. And what's going on today with wildland fire is thanks to climate change, the risks have changed profoundly. That the age of megafires is upon us. The Tubbs fire, the Paradise fire, all of these things, it's a change in the environment. Right. Fire is not a fire event. Fire is a weather event that, you know, 1% of the time we have the right weather conditions to trigger a fire. And so what we now have to ask ourselves is, 
how do we respond to that? Mm -hmm. And can we respond to that as people, particularly in this huge broad swath of land in California and elsewhere, and as people are able to spread out in terms of where they live, which we've talked about, then these two things mash up together pretty toughly. Cities are a conversation. Real estate is a conversation. People are allowed to spread out because regional planners make it possible for people to spread out. Mm -hmm. And real estate, uh, or rather insurance companies make it possible that people get real estate. We're gonna change our pattern. We're gonna change the architecture of the buildings. We're gonna, in my opinion, we're certain to retreat some from the wildland interface. Mm It's going to be a struggle. Think of the federal flood insurance and all the places get flooded again and again and get insurance again and again. Finally, people are saying, okay, wait, you know, we want to do a one and done. If you get flooded out, we're going to give you the money, but on the condition you abandon the property. And so we're going to, I expect, do that with fire. And California absolutely is going to hit an insurance crisis where people are going to discover their houses are uninsurable. It's going to be unfair. It's going to have disproportionate impact on the most vulnerable of people, but that seems to be the way we're going to work it out. Yeah, I bet that's going to happen. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I will be broadcasting back from San Francisco in the future instead of from Sonoma County. So, right, and if you're lucky, you'll be in San Francisco when the quake hits. I know. I was, I'll go somewhere less exciting. Paul, what aren't we talking about that you know about either the future or technology that would impact the world of real estate? Any surprises? five, 10 years out, things that intrigue you that we should know about? Um, oh, gosh, there are a lot of things. Um, let me let me give you one example, then a, a small observation. Mm-hmm. Digital technology is getting a lot of attention. But in fact, the thing that's really going to shape our lives over the next 30 to 50 years is not bits and computers, it's biology. About every 30 years, a science field turns to technology and shapes our lives. The first third of the last century was shaped by chemistry and chemists. The second third was shaped by physics and physicists. The final third of the century was information technology. And we're still enjoying a lot of that, but coming in on little cat's feet is biology, genetics, genomics. And an indicator is how quickly we got this vaccine. Mm-hmm. far faster than anyone expected, in part because mRNA and, and biological link. So the biggest impact on your life is biology going ahead. Here's a piece of advice. Humans are fascinated by change. You know, you haven't seen someone for a while say, hey, what's new? And we're evolutionarily adapted to notice things that are different. You, know, you and I are here alive today because each of us comes from an unbroken line of ancestors who managed to be alert enough to avoid getting eaten by a predator because they noticed something moving in the grass. (laughs) So the problem is that we're a little over-focused on what's new. And the simple fact is even in periods of rapid dramatic change, just as the last 12 years most certainly has been, that the things that don't change are vastly greater in number than the things that do change. Pay attention to the constants. Look for the things that nobody's talking about. And really the future is shaped by the interaction of the constants dancing with the changes. But change at the end of the day is just a thin slice of frosting on top of a much deeper cake. Oh, it's really true. And one of your comments through the podcast is kind of taking the long view about things. And always, it's so easy just to look at what's new, shiny, the trend of this moment. Let's do it. Wait, be patient, have a long view yeah, of no, investment. I, at times, I mean, people want to solve a problem. And the longer I'm in this business, the more I realize that dramatic solutions lead to dramatic unintended consequences. And so at moments, oftentimes, the best reaction when something happens isn't to rush to it, is to pause and say, hmm, what's going on here? You know, San Francisco Bay Area has a lot of uh, large community of Zen Buddhists, and there's a bumper sticker very popular uh, that says, don't just do something, sit there. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, the best thing a strategist can do 
when something is going crazy, I say, let me pause just a moment here. Let me sit here. I'm not going to just do something. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to figure out what the right long-term thing is. It's mm, beautiful. So last question on leading voices is always, what advice would you have for a young person getting into the real estate business? I have no idea. I, I mean, because I don't understand the real estate business. I would say uh, team up with a very wise older partner who will teach you the ropes. What would your advice be to a young person moving into their career and into their life in it, inside or outside of real estate? Well, I think is you got to think three moves ahead. Mm -hmm. Don't think about what your first job is. Think about what your job after that job after that job is. You know, there's, there's this old 777 rule. Are you familiar with that? No. Oh, so it's, you know, it's folk wisdom. It says, when making a decision, always consider the following as reality check. If you're about to do something, what is the effect of what I'm about to do seven hours from now? And then what is the effect of what I'm about to do seven months from now? And what is the effect seven years from now? Hmm. And that idea, you know, pick your own time, but saying, okay, what are the, not just the immediate effects, but the second and third order effects? Beautiful. I do have another question for you. I said final, final question, but it's not. Utopian, dystopian, how do you balance that for yourself? How do you hold the future? <laughs> this is what you do. Do you look at it optimistically? Do you look at it pessimistically? Does that, oh. Is that not a relevant term for you sure. because well, you just look let at us, it? Let us keep in mind that utopia, by definition, was a place that never existed. Mm -hmm. And that was the appeal. And luckily, dystopias tend to die out pretty fast because people flee them. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, when cyberspace, when the, the web was taking off and everybody was forecasting that, wow, cyberspace is here. And like we do with all new technologies, one group of people saying, this is going to deliver us to a new utopian happiness. And others to say, right. this is going to deliver us to a new dystopian hell. Well, what we got was cyberbia. You know, it was neither utopia nor dystopia. It was just sort of like what we had already, except virtual and maybe with a few fewer pink flamingo lawn ornaments. So for me as a forecaster, my default is I'm a short-term pessimist, but a long-term optimist. That's a fair deal. And yeah. you're a gardener. Well, I believe in gardening. And, you know, in that re regard, the person that I would suggest people look at, not just any gardener, but is the Japanese gardening philosopher, Masanobu Fukuoka, who had this whole way of taking just a piece of blasted land and turning it into a lush garden. And it was through patience and cleverness and the like, but also like many Japanese types that he's, he was also a philosopher. One of my favorite quotes of his is, if you throw nature out the window, she's going to come right back in through the front door with a pitchfork. <laughs> Beautiful quote. Great quote to end on. Hey, Paul, thank you very, very much. It's been a delightful, very provocative conversation, and I appreciate your time. My pleasure to talk, sir. Thanks. Okay, no, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time. <laughs>